0: Bottom line, the issue of authority rests beneath everything. I mean, when you think of it, I remember saying to my wife early on when I was studying Catholicism, where she said to me, "She said everything revolves down to the issue of authority." I mean, for instance, if the angel Gabriel really did dictate the Quran to Muhammad, then we have to be Muslim. If Joseph Smith really did
1: see what he says he saw, we all better be Latter Day Saints. Yeah, the Golden Tablets,
0: man. I got to move to Utah if he if he really got them. Yeah, and they really came. So, I mean, the issue of authority is everything.
1: Welcome to another nobly attempted episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley, and we have got pages and pages of things to go over today because we are starting a brand new series on authority. And uh, if you like what you've been hearing so far in the previous series that we've done here on On the Journey, please go to chnetwork.org to find out more of what we're up to over at the Coming Home Network. Uh, Subscribe to our YouTube channel, and especially uh, if you're up for it, come visit us in our online community That's community.chnetwork.org. Ken and I are always hanging out in there and mixing things up. So, Ken, are you ready to talk about authority?
0: I I'm ready to begin talking about it. Uh, Can you believe it? It's 90 degrees here in Southern California today. It
1: is not that where I am in Washington D.C. Heat wave. Um, Weird. Yes, very weird. It's what's it like out there? Warm and sunny in Southern California. That is weird, Ken. Yeah. No, I'm in the swamp. I'm in the swamp. It's, just it's weird muggy. in
0: the sense that it was cold a couple of weeks ago, and it's just like blistering now. So we'll see. But yes, I am ready to begin talking about it. The subject is so important. In fact, we're beginning uh, today a new series in which we're going to tackle the key issue, no doubt about it, that separates Catholicism and Protestantism, and that is the issue of authority.
1: As a matter of fact, Ken, uh, several of the issues that we've done so far, Sola Scriptura, the Eucharist, baptism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is kind of the, the issue that is underneath all of them, yeah. and kind yeah. of yeah. has to be yeah. understood before we can really get yeah. at why and how we believe those other things. Yeah,
0: in, in fact, many moons back, you and I did an 11-part series on Sola Scriptura, where we were critiquing, really, the foundation of Protestantism as a worldview. That is the idea, the belief, that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church and for the individual believer. Um, Or to quote Protestant scholars, Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie, who we quoted many times back then, scripture, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else is all that is necessary for faith and practice. Um, what we did at that time was we attempted to do our best to, um, it, to tell the story, really, of the process of thought that occurred in us that led us away from Sola Scriptura um, as, as a doctrine that we found ultimately to be unscriptural, to be unhistorical and never had been the faith of the church, to be unworkable, and in the end, illogical. Okay, so we focused on it then. And we critiqued Sola Scriptura then, but then you're right, we kind of went off into baptism, which is kind of an illustration of how tradition works, into other subjects. What we didn't do at that time was turn the corner and proceed to make the positive case for the Catholic position on authority um, that is, the infamous three legged stool Scripture, tradition, and magisterium. And I've had that in my mind ever since, wanting to come back to it, needing to come back to it, because this is the foundational issue from our point of view, and that's what we're going to begin talking about today.
1: All right, so let's get to it. What do we got?
0: Well, what we have, first of all, is a question, Matt, um, just to talk about the issue of authority briefly. When you were a Methodist, I mean, what constituted binding authority in, in your life as a Christian? How did you conceive of this whole issue of authority?
1: Well, I would say that, uh, so briefly Methodist is a very young child, uh, Nazarene through the formative younger years into high school and that, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Nazarene and then mm-hmm. free Methodist from high school, uh, through college. And, uh, for most of those years, I would have just said, well, the word of God is the sole rule of faith. Um, no denomination mm-hmm. is over me to tell me that it's between me and Jesus and his word. And I just go to the denomination that I think best expresses that, uh, when I got later into college, uh, and started studying theology mm-hmm. at a Wesleyan tradition school, we came uh, across the idea of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which I don't know if you've had the fortune of coming across that idea, but essentially it's instead so, of a sounds three-legged like stool— something
0: I learned in geometry class. Yeah, uh, it's more like a Punic
1: square. Yeah, but um, word, tradition, reason, and experience. So the mm-hmm, idea that Scripture, mm-hmm. tradition, and tradition does not mean what it means in the Catholic Church, but it has overlap— Reason, as in, like, what does my reason tell me mm-hmm. uh, about who God is? We're going to get into some of that today. And then mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And my experience verifies those other three things. But the biggest thing is the word. The biggest thing is the scripture. It's the lens through which we yeah. understand tradition, reason, and experience. So you can see how there are overlaps with the Catholic belief, but at the same time, um, it has that, that idea of scripture being sort of self-interpreting and that tradition and reason and experience are all kind of subject to it. There's not, mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. a three-legged stool. It's like a log with like three little spindles around it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I would say, you know, I don't want to repeat everything you've just said, but my story would would be similar. I mean, I know this. I remember that when I was preaching that from time to time, I would say something to my congregation like, well, listen, you don't have to accept what I say. I'm one fallible interpreter of God's word. You know, you... You have the right and you have the duty. Go home and study and decide for yourself. So it was the Bible. It was the inspired word of God. This was the only binding authority. I might treat some other people as sort of authorities because I had come to trust them, but it was sort of authorities, as I say. But yeah, anyway, and
1: both of you would have said, both of us would have said, I believe, mm-hmm. um, the Bible is the authority, not my interpretation yep. of the Bible. Right, right, right. right. I mean, right. we wouldn't have thought right. that our interpretation of the Bible was yeah. something separate from the Bible. We would have thought that our interpretation was. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, the Bible. well this so. is the foundation, I mean if, if you wanna call it the epistemological foundation, uh, that's not entirely accurate though, of the Protestant worldview uh, as a system of thought, is the idea of sola scriptura. Scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. Now, I want you to notice, I want our hearers, I want our viewers to notice, notice the entirely different thought world that we enter when we turn to the Catholic view of how authority functions in the church. And what I want to do is I want to read a passage from Dei Verbum, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation from Vatican II. I want to read this out loud. In in this passage, of course, you know, I mean, I guess what would be the point of reading it silently, but I'm gonna read it out loud, okay? In this passage, the basic Catholic position is 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 stated. It's just stated. It's not argued for, it's just stated, but stated clearly. And I want our viewers our listeners, to simply hear it at this point because it provides the framework really for everything that you and I are going to talk about over the course of the following weeks as we dig into this three-legged stool, Scripture, Tradition, and Magisterium. Okay, so here it is. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it was put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And Sacred Tradition, okay, we've got Scripture, Now, tradition, sacred tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. But the task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. Here's the magisterium, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It draws from this one deposit of faith everything which it presents for belief as divinely revealed. One more paragraph. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, again, the magisterium, in accord with God's most wise design are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others and that all together and each in its own way under the action of the one Holy Spirit, contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. Thus we see scripture, tradition, and magisterium, and I know a million questions rise immediately from what I've just read here. And and these are questions that this series is going to be devoted to answering, but um, I have to say one point at a time, all right?
1: You mean one leg at a time?
0: (laughs) not not even one leg because it could be one uh, each leg will be many points so
1: but that's the but this is the issue though right because uh you know as you're just saying uh you know in my estimation you know even word tradition reason and experience were seen as four different columns and the church sees scripture tradition and magisterium kind of as all sort of the same thing Uh, they're all you take one leg out and the stool falls over so that's that's a big part of what we're about to discuss
0: Right, and so we will be, you know, so many questions about what they mean, what does tradition mean, what does magisterium mean, how do they relate to one another, um, how are they authoritative, at what level, you know, all of this. But we need to walk through it point by point by point. Now, in this series, we're going to be making extensive use of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And the reason that I wanted to do that was I want our viewers, our listeners, again, to know that what we are presenting is what the Church actually teaches You and I are both converts, and sometimes converts are charged with distorting the teaching or sort of Protestantizing the Catholic teaching. I want those listening to us in this series and watching on YouTube to know that what we're presenting is the teaching of the Church. And so we're going to be following the Catechism carefully, and we're going to be reading extensively from it along the way. And I want to begin by backing up a bit to talk about what we refer to as general revelation. Okay? Because the church following scripture teaches us that God first reveals himself to every person through the created order. Both Protestants and Catholics teach this and agree to this, and and both are happy to refer to this as general revelation. I think immediately of Psalm 19 verses 1 through 3, beautiful passage, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Um, In other words, according to the Bible then, Scripture, the created order speaks of God's existence, and it speaks of God's nature. The heavens are telling the glory of God it speaks of god's existence and nature continually all the time day after day pours forth speech night after night declares knowledge and finally it teaches us that this message god's existence god's nature reaches every person on earth and i quote again there is no speech nor are there words their voices their voice is not heard yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world, and Ken, so, this is
1: so yeah. evident that you you can see the reasoning behind someone who would say, "Why do I need to go to church? I can just walk into the, into the woods and experience the presence of God." I mean, that's how strong yeah. general revelation is, um, and
0: there and, and there is some truth to that. Yes, there is yeah, some. It's, truth It's to that. only
1: one piece of the puzzle, yeah. Though, yeah. So,
0: so the created order, if you will is shouting out the glory of God, the existence of God and the glory of God. And then if you add to this the fact that you and I and all people have been created in the very image and likeness of God, in other words, created to 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 function as finite mirrors of God's being and God's nature, it's clear really that no one on earth can escape knowing who this God is. Um, I think it was John Calvin who said that that uh, he basically said, you know, we cannot even reflect upon ourselves without immediately thinking about God, reflecting upon God. And we can't reflect upon God without immediately reflecting upon ourselves, basically, because we are the image and likeness of God. You and I can't even look into a mirror without knowing something about what God is like. We are, I like to say, we are essentially walking, talking advertisements for God's existence and God's nature. And because of this, St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that man is without excuse, so that people are without excuse. In fact, Paul goes on, or he actually says this right, right before in verse 18, he says that in order to erase the knowledge of God that every person possesses, sinful man must engage in a kind of suppression of the evidences he says he must suppress the truth in unrighteousness that's the phrase that paul uses Yeah,
1: and it's this is the the case throughout human history you go and you uh you know an explorer goes out and finds a tribe that's never had contact with the outside world and guess what that tribe worships god in some form right a god or gods uh there's this sense that i mean there's not really uh this thread throughout human history where these atheist cultures have sprung up in random places around the planet. No, I mean, everybody has this sense that mm-hmm. something something provides for them in some way and that they owe it homage. Maybe, yeah. maybe they don't... Maybe it's not the triune yeah. God, but it's something. Yeah.
0: And that's why throughout human history, uh, I mean, virtually everyone has been religious. The idea of atheism has always been a very small minority and it, it, it may be a larger minority now, but still... I think that polls still show that something like over 90% of people all believe in God in some form. And it it kind of makes sense because if all of creation is shouting out the glory of God and proclaiming his nature, and if we are the image and likeness of God, so we're like mirrors of God ourselves, it's pretty hard to, to, to escape it. It's pretty hard. God reveals himself through the beauty and order of creation. And we could go off here. There's so many great apologetics works that have been done talking about that the fine-tuning of the universe and whatnot god reveals himself through beauty through the order of creation through conscience through the love that we receive and that we give through family through the fact that really in every way we are the images of the god who made us and we're living in a universe that cries out all day long day-to-day pouring forth speech and night-to-night revealing knowledge about god and important application here. This is why that we believe that God, um, because God knows the heart of every single person, that God can deal with each person according to the light that he or she has received and according to the light that they have responded to, um, because everyone has received light. I mean, at one time, I'll just say this without going into it in detail, but at one time in my Christian life, I remember a lot of talk in my own church about the only way that anybody can be saved is if a missionary goes to them and tells them the entire story of Jesus and they believe it. You know, they accept it, quote quote unquote. I don't think that way anymore. I don't think that way as a Catholic.
1: Yeah, and the catechism doesn't teach that way, by the way. Which is yeah. another conversation.
0: Yeah, it is uh, another conversation. But C. S. <S. But, Lewis,
1: uh, you know, was the one who sort of illuminated that question for me. But on to on then to. Special divine revelation. Special revelation, divine revelation. revelation. We use the interchangeable terms in my background.
0: Okay, so we have general revelation, God's revelation of himself through the created order, through, through us as his image and likeness, okay? But this is not enough, the catechism teaches us. And it's not enough because God has desired to reveal his heart and his mind, his intentions and his plans to the human race. And therefore God has opened up and spoken, We refer to this as divine revelation or special revelation. Now listen to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 50, beautiful statement of this. By natural reason, man can know God with certainty on the basis of his works, the created order. But there is another order of knowledge which man cannot possibly arrive at by his own powers, the order of divine revelation. Through an utterly free decision, God has revealed himself And given himself to man, this he does by revealing the mystery, his plan of loving goodness formed from all eternity in Christ for the benefit of all men. And I want to say first that this makes sense. This makes rational, logical sense because God is a personal being. God is not like electricity. He's not like the force in Star Wars or anything like that. He's not an impersonal force, and he's not an impersonal being as you have in in um, Eastern philosophy and Eastern religions even. In order to really know God, a personal being, in order to enter into relationship with God, it only makes rational sense that God would have to reveal himself more personally. Um, it's exactly the same for you and I. Now, Matt, you're on the East Coast, I'm on the West, so this is not going to happen even if you get the even if you get the, uh, you know, the, the evil idea in your mind, but you could take me and throw me up onto a dissection table and you could dissect me alive. I mean, you could pull out every fiber, every neuron from my brain, and you could examine it with an electron microscope. You could dump all kinds of chemicals into my carcass. You know, you, you could basically, you could run every test imaginable on my body and you're still not going to know anything about me unless I, you know, turn my head at that point And
1: might know how many Cheetos you ate. Speak to that's you. That's about yeah. it. Yeah. You know. <laughs> You'll
0: know. Yeah. I actually haven't eaten Cheetos in a few weeks, but
1: yeah, unless no, I turn up. my
0: head and scream at you to stop cutting me open and messing with I'll me. I'll know that you don't like pain, right? Yeah. You're not going to know. You're not going to know anything about me. So it makes sense. This is the reality for us too. No one knows us until we speak, really, until we reveal who we are. and And this is what God has done. This is God's special revelation. God has spoken. And so we read in Genesis chapter 2 of the Lord speaking with our first parents in the Garden of Eden and revealing his mind to them. And then even after the human race fell, um, we read through the Old Testament of God continuing to reach out to the human family, entering into covenant with Noah and his family, and then later with Abraham and his tribe, and then later on with Moses and the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and then later on with David and the extended kingdom of Israel, and then finally when we come to the New Testament, God reaching out and communicating to us in the New Covenant, instituted in in our Lord Jesus and in His body and His blood.
1: And I don't want to skip ahead and steal too much thunder here, because I know that we're going to get here.
0: you but always say that right before you skip ahead. Right before I skip thunder. ahead and start stealing them. <laughs> Go ahead. So, But
1: as you, you, you note this, this pattern is going to be so important to understand authority uh, as the Catholic Church understands it, because you see it small, atomized, right, with Adam, mm-hmm. pun intended, right? Yeah. With one person is the covenant, right? And then it gets larger through Noah and his yeah. family, Abraham, his tribe, David and the whole people, Jesus yes. and all peoples. Um, it is not... What I used to think, once Jesus comes all the way back to the Adam model, where it's just me and God and nobody else matters. Uh, right, it, right. It's, it's It's Jesus brings something to bear that is a new way of understanding that is in complete continuity with that expansion of authority. Um, yeah, and I yeah, love I, don't that want to steal, so I don't want I, to steal anymore, but...
0: Well, the thing is, I love that image, so I almost want to steal from the future as well. But, but you're right. You've got Adam and Eve and, the, uh, the, and their marriage you've got then Noah and his family, then you have Abraham and the tribe, and then you have Moses and the nation, David and the kingdom. And then finally with with Jesus, you have this universal church, the the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that extends out and invites every human being on earth um, into it. Um, Yeah, so you have this you have this spreading thing okay but this is god's divine revelation his special revelation in fact you could say we we could say that the bible is really the story of god's expanding special revelation to the human race a revelation that culminated historically in the incarnation of, of the son of god who the author of hebrews tells us was quote the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Let me read that. In many and various ways, the author of Hebrews begins, God spoke of uh, of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who is the radiance of God's glory. I love this part. Who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. In other words, God has spoken his most definitive word. And I love how the catechism puts it. Paragraphs 65 and 66, Christ, the Son of God made man, is the Father's one perfect and unsurpassable word. In him he has said everything. There will be no other word than this one. The Christian economy, therefore, since it is the new and definitive covenant, will never pass away. No new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: That last line is going to come into major play uh, here in a little bit, but this idea of Christ, mm-hmm. the Son of God made man, as the Father's one perfect and unsurpassable Word. Uh, this is a theme that comes up in Dei Verbum. It's something else that Pope Benedict the Sixteenth revisited, mm-hmm. uh, and it's an important distinction that might seem a little bit weird uh, to people who aren't familiar with understanding authority in this way. But he, he uh, this this idea that we are not people of the book right? A lot of religions, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they're the religions of the book, and we we are instead a religion of the Word. And that might seem like a a meaningless distinction, but once you understand what the Church means by the Word uh, and what Scripture means by the Word, it starts to make a lot more sense.
0: Yeah, I won't add to that right now, but yes, 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 yes. In fact, one thing I'm thinking as I read these passages from the Catechism is that I would assume that there are Protestants listening who might be thinking, as I did when I first began to read the Catechism, like, "Well, that's actually said really well." You know, um, maybe maybe a Protestant who has been who, who thinks that Catholicism is just this dark distortion of God's truth. You know, and you know, you read these passages and you're going, "This is quite beautiful. This is said in a good way." Okay, but the thing I want to make clear here before we move on um, is that. Catholics and Protestants are in total agreement on everything that we've said thus far. That is the main points we've been making. Both believe in general revelation, both believe in God's special revelation um, revealed throughout the pages of Scripture, and both believe that after Christ and the New Covenant, which would include the New Covenant documents, the writings of the Apostles, both agree that no further public revelation is to be expected. And I think it's good at this point to clear up a common misconception because I speak with Protestants on a regular basis who seem to think that the Catholic Church, or not seem to think, who think that the Catholic Church believes in continuing public revelation. Um, They think that we Catholics believe that the Church continues to receive public revelation from God. Um, In fact, some think that this is the view we have of the Pope. Um, that the Pope is like one of the Old Testament prophets or one of the New Testament apostles, that the Pope continues to receive revelation from God and that he then passes along to the church, you know, so that we could, at least in theory, we could take any one of the papal encyclicals that are being written and we could open our New Testament and we could staple it in between the book of Acts and the book of Romans or something. And so I want us to make clear that, 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 that this is not the case. This is not the case at all. Um, in fact, verse 3 of the book of Jude speaks of, and I'm quoting now, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And this is what Catholics believe. Yes, Catholic teaching allows for what we refer to as the development of doctrine. I mean, it allows for the idea that the church's understanding of that faith once for all delivered to the saints might deepen over time. Um, It allows for the idea that new implications might be drawn out by the Spirit of God working in the church over time. Uh, So it it allows for the idea of development, but not the idea of new public revelation being given. Um, The church even allows for the existence of private revelations, um, which at times may be recognized by the church. But again, I want to emphasize these are not conceived of as adding to the deposit of public revelation. As a matter of fact, it
1: might it might surprise some mm -hmm. viewers and listeners who are not part of the Catholic Church to realize that the Church has shot down lots and lots of proposed private revelations over the years of people saying, you know, I heard Mary telling me this about the nature of the Holy Spirit, you know, and the Church is like, yeah, that's not what the that's not what the Church has been had revealed to it about the Holy Spirit. Uh, We cannot accept this revelation as being from God. That kind of stuff has happened.
0: Over All and over time. and over
1: again through the centuries.
0: And um, then even the ones that are recommended, I, I mean, like, what exactly is the status for those even? The ones that are not recommended but are approved or recognized or whatever? Right.
1: They're, they're not binding and required. It's not as though—I mean, it's a pretty beautiful thing to follow the messages of Our Lady of Fatima and Guadalupe, and the Church recommends them to us, but they are mm-hmm. not binding upon us in the right. same way that, for instance, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception or the Virgin Birth mm-hmm. or— mm-hmm the triune nature of God are binding upon us. Uh, and again, yeah, I guess
0: another I guess another way of saying it is we don't take the words of those private revelations and add them to the Bible either.
1: No, those, those are not on the level of Scripture, nor are they meant to be.
0: So then the church's formal teaching, state once again, is that public revelation, special revelation, is concluded with the teachings of Christ and the apostles, and no further public revelation is to be expected until Jesus returns again and So what I say is when Jesus returns, um, if he has some things to say, he can tell me whatever he wants, and I will consider that to be new public revelation. But between now and then, the church does not expect that. Correct. Okay, now we turn a corner. So far then, Catholics and Protestants are in agreement, okay, on general revelation, on the existence of divine revelation, special revelation by which God willed to reveal himself, and on the fact that public revelation ends with Christ, the incarnation, the teaching of the apostles, God's word in Christ and the new covenant, and no further public revelation is coming. Okay, it's when we come to the question, this is very carefully stated here, when we come to the question of how this public revelation has been reliably transmitted to the church and within the church, that's where the divergence begins between Protestantism and Catholicism. Let let me say that again. It's when we come to the question of how this public revelation has been reliably transmitted to the church and in the church, this is where the two split. Protestantism from the beginning, with Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and the rest, has insisted that God's special revelation has been reliably transmitted in only one way, through the inspired scriptures, Sola Scriptura. On the other hand, Catholicism has taught from the beginning that God's special revelation to the world has been reliably transmitted through scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, or the interworking, the interworking of scripture, tradition, and the Magisterium, as we read at the beginning from Dei Verbum. And let me just state this, I mean, as strongly as possible. This really is the key to what separates Protestantism and Catholicism. This is the key. I mean, this is the foundational issue, the bottom line, what lies underneath. You know, everything else really arises from that and um, and uh, moves outward from that. This is the key to what separates Catholicism and Protestantism. I'm, I'm sure you've read some of Hilaire Belloc's books. Yes, Great Catholic historian. And
1: poems his huh? Cautionary Tales for Children, of course.
0: Okay, okay. Well, in one of his books, and I didn't even bother to go look at what the title was. I can't remember. Maybe the book is titled What Was the Reformation? But he, has, he, he asked the question in one of his books, Hilaire Belloc, what was the Reformation? What, what was it? That is like, what is the inner mystery, the secret to what it really was all about? Well, in, in answering this question, Belloc points out, first of all, that the reformers were not creating a new religion. They weren't coming in to introduce a new religion like, like Islam or Buddhism or something else like that. But then secondly, he argues that that while the Reformation involved a dispute over various doctrines... It it certainly involved the dispute over various doctrines. He says, the Reformation at its heart wasn't a doctrinal dispute. So what was it? Well, according to Belloc, he says, the Reformation, when you dig down to the heart of it, was a dispute over the issue of authority within the church and in the life of the Christian. It was a dispute over who has authority to decide what is and what is not true Christian teaching? Simply put, the Reformation, according to Belloc, was a rejection of the idea that there existed on earth a spiritual authority outside the pages of the Bible itself, and that this authority was represented by the Catholic Church.
1: So there, are, I got to be careful here about going into too. First of all, too far ahead, and also I don't want to misstate. Um, a situation, but you know there there's been talk about you know disputes within the Episcopal Church, yeah. Um, disputes within uh, the United Methodist Church has been having lots and lots of discussions uh, about what would sound like on the surface to be questions about m- morality, mm-hmm. and in some sense they are, but more deeply than that, they're questions about the authority of Scripture. And so, even within sola scriptura, there's, you know, there there can be varying degrees mm-hmm. to which people understand what that even means. Uh, so, mm-hmm. which you which you get in this situation, there's no sense that the church speaks and defines these things, even if that church is established as a denomination because of the way that sola scriptura naturally understands authority. Even if the Bible is no longer the most binding authority, it's it's something that happens when sola scriptura when a book which is subject to interpretation becomes an authority rather than a received interpretation given to a body. Um, I'm going way far ahead by saying yeah. that, but I just want to say that you know, a lot of things are out there about you know why this church is splitting or that church is splitting, yeah. and a lot of it has to do not with what you think it's about, but it has to do more with authority.
0: Yeah, I mean, you usually these questions do resolve down to that, it, you know, they percolate down to the bottom line, and it ends, it ends up being the authority. Either it ends up being a dispute about the authority of Scripture. I'm speaking within a Protestant context now of the authority of Scripture itself, and a debate will arise again about that. Or it will be the authority, I mean, the question of who has the authority to interpret it, or whose interpretation is, is authoritative. But bottom line, the issue of authority rests beneath everything. I mean, when you think of it, I remember saying to my wife early on when I was studying Catholicism, where she said to me, she said everything revolves down to the issue of authority. I mean, for instance, if the angel Gabriel really did dictate the Quran to Muhammad, then we have to be Muslim. I mean, Joseph it, it, it's Smith really did
1: see what he says he saw. Yeah. We all better be Latter Day Saints. Yeah, the golden tablets, now.
0: man. I got to move to Utah if he if he really if got them. Really really, yeah, and they really came. So I mean, the issue of authority is everything. And so, I think that Belloc is dead right when he says the Reformation at its heart, it wasn't a new religion being you know being brought in, and it wasn't just a dispute over various doctrines. It was a dispute over the issue of authority, namely. The Reformation was a revolt against the idea that there existed on earth a spiritual authority outside the pages of Scripture itself.
1: And to be clear, you know, from an outsider's perspective, it might have seemed that Christendom then split into two groups, Catholics and Protestants. But again, you have maybe that underlying basis for authority but that particular basis for authority doesn't lead to a unified anything as as martin luther himself found out pretty quickly Um, yeah
0: yeah because protestantism began you know to take numerous forms and it began to do it right away in fact martin luther began by saying and i'm quoting him now i do not accept the authority of popes and councils in matters of faith each christian is his own pope and council luther began by saying that but literally within two years Luther was complaining, and I'm quoting him again, there quoting him again, there are as many sects and beliefs now as there are heads. The Protestant movement began to fragment right away, almost immediately, because of disagreements between those who all claimed to be standing upon the clear teaching of the Bible alone. But but here's the thing. The one thing that Protestants all agreed on and had in common was this rejection of the spiritual authority of the Catholic Church. Again, as I said, an authority that really had formed the basis of a unified Christendom from the time of the apostles. So you have a unified Christendom for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years based on the spiritual authority of the church, of the Catholic church. Then you have the Reformation where that whole idea is rejected and we're going to stand upon the authority of the Bible alone. But then, because there's no one on earth who can authoritatively interpret it, you immediately have two Protestant denominations and then four and then eight and then 16 and on and on we go. You see what a mathematical uh, genius I am you
1: don't know how to you don't <laughs> know what 16 plus 16 is that's the problem 32. Well, there you have it um, okay. but you, this is also where in the present day we have difficulty with a word like Protestant because in these early years, even mm. in these early centuries there's a sense that we reject the Catholic Church the Bible is our authority. Whereas in present-day 21st century America, someone becomes a Christian, like you become a Christian, you know, does somebody say, do you accept Jesus Christ and reject the authority of the Catholic Church? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It was no. more like, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Here's the Bible. Here's what he teaches, right? So yeah. um, there's not that yeah. conscious rejection um, right. for, for many Christians in the present day yeah. uh, as there would have had to have been in, that, in those early days.
0: Well, that's the disagreement. And this is still the essence of the disagreement is the point that, that I wish to make here and make clearly. This is still the essence of the, degree, of the disagreement. There are thousands and thousands of Protestant sects and denominations, independent churches, independent movements, pastors, young charismatic men who just stand up and start a, a mega church on their own, you know, based on their own theology. And they differ on all sorts of issues. But there's one thing that they are in perfect agreement on, and it's this. The Catholic Church certainly has no spiritual authority over me. Some would say no
1: church, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, any of it has any authority over me. What has authority over me is the word of God.
0: But they're sure that the Catholic Church doesn't. God's given us his word. God has put his Holy Spirit within us. God has given us smart pastors to help us understand the Bible. What more do we need, Matt? What more do we need? And so this is how Protestantism thinks. And I just want to cycle back to the beginning, really, to say this is how I thought for many, many years. It wasn't a position that I came to, Matt, as the result of some you know, serious, in-depth, analytic discussion or analysis of the Protestant claims and the Catholic claims on the issue of authority. For the most part, for me, it was simply assumed in the evangelical world into which um, I came to Christ and in which I lived. Every Christian I knew thought this way. Every church I attended thought this way. Every teacher I listened to thought this way. Sola Scriptura was literally the atmosphere in which I lived my life, and it was what I accepted. In fact, I could say that the root of my conversion to the Catholic faith was simply the Reformation in reverse. It was a conversion from Sola Scriptura to an acceptance of the church's claim to be That united spiritual authority that Hilaire Belloc talked about, um, founded by Christ and by his apostles. How about you?
1: I would say it's a a similar thing. And uh, part of it for me came um, with this notion that I was under the impression for a good long while in my Christian life, uh, you know, through my childhood into my teenage years, that... All Christians basically believe the same thing. We just mm-hmm. went where we liked the music and the preaching the best, right? <laughs> That's right. And in fact, um, you know, on a on a a, a typical main street and a small town in America, you might have ten different churches who believe ten different things about baptism, uh, or ten different things mm-hmm. about whether or not you can lose your salvation and how, or or all these other things but every single one of them would have said because the bible says this yeah. that's why we yeah. believe these things um and again i would not have made that separation in my own mind you know reading the bible and highlighting it as a teenager mm-hmm. in the nazarene youth group i wouldn't have thought here's the bible and here's what i think about it i would have just said here's the bible yeah, right? here's, what it, here's what, it what it says what i what i would have thought about it would have just been like well this is obviously what it means Um, So I wouldn't have taken it as my own interpretation. And I I would say that the majority of Christians and and the majority of pastors don't think, well, this is my interpretation. I think it's the best of possible interpretations. They would say, no, this is what it means.
0: This is what the Bible says. Yeah. Yeah, in in fact, I have often thought after becoming Catholic that at the moment that I came to faith in Christ, if someone had come to me the next day, for instance, and said, okay, now uh, step two, here are the best Lutheran theologians... Here are the best Calvinist theologians. Here are the best Presbyterian, the best Baptist, the best Nazarene, best Methodist, best best Anglican, best Greek Orthodox. Pick a church. Now, <laughs> now, you need to study these and decide which,
1: which one's right.
0: You know, I would have just blown my fuses. You know, I didn't think that way at all. I was just introduced to a group who loved the Lord and read the Bible, and and what they taught me is what the Bible said. It was and only you know way... what?
1: That's a pretty good start. Yeah. yeah. It, well, it, it was for me.
0: It was. It was for me. Okay, let me wrap this up then. Scripture, tradition, and magisterium. The infamous three-legged stool. So what do we mean when we speak of tradition? What is tradition? What value is tradition? How do we know that the tradition is true? What about magisterium? What do you even mean? How do these two, tradition and magisterium, how do they relate to scripture? How does it all work within the Catholic system? What is the biblical What is the historical, what is even the logical case that you can make for the Catholic view?
1: Ken, that's a lot of questions to ask at the end of an episode.
0: Well, this is where we begin next week. This is what this whole series is gonna be about, is trying to walk through those questions and bring clarity on them as much as possible.
1: Well, hopefully you brought at least a a little bit of clarity to the foundations of how we as Catholics think about authority. And hopefully, uh, no matter what Christian background you come from, you found some resonance between what you believe and what we believe as Catholics. And of course, as Ken said, there's there's a lot more to be said about this and, and a lot more to build upon this. But in the meantime, uh, we would love to hear from you and uh, get your own thoughts on this. Maybe you are uh, expressing some interest in the Catholic faith. We would love to hear from you. Uh, check us out at chnetwork.org. Come into the community uh, where Ken and I hang out, our online community of people who discuss these things. It's community.chnetwork.org. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, share with your friends, And, uh, yeah, thanks for being with us. Ken, we'll talk to you next time around.
0: I'm I'm sure glad that you get to say all that stuff at the end because I would never be able to remember it. Well. Thank you.
1: You also don't have this piece of paper.
0: Good to see you next week.
1: It's special. Talk to you soon.
0: Bye-bye.